0: Toledo. You're in Madison Square Garden, New York City, on January the 23rd, 1984. A massive crowd has packed into the seats to watch the main event for the World Wrestling Federation World Title, standing room only. As a fan, you've been following the rise of one of the most hated heels, or villains in wrestling history, the Iron Sheik. The Iron Sheik defeated Bob Backlund with his signature move, the Camel Clutch, to take the world title. The crowd hates this heel as much as they love their heroes. Several years ago, the Iron Sheik was known by another persona, the great Hussein Arab. But Arabs are currently allies of the US against Iran. No one wants to make a villain out of one's own allies. This is the genius of Vince McMahon the owner of the WWF, he has an uncanny ability to go along with US foreign policy, to prey on the politics of the crowd. So today, the great Hussein Arab is known as the Iron Sheik. There aren't actually any sheiks in Iran, but neither you nor the crowd care about that little detail and nuance. You're eagerly awaiting for the match to start. The crowd is electric. Fans are holding up signs saying things like the Sheik is a freak and they erupt in boos and sneers when the Iron Sheik makes his way to the ring. Moments later the crowd goes wild when the one and only Hulk Hogan comes out of the tunnel donning an American-made tank top, USA, 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 he is a mammoth of a man. He dwarfs the Iron Sheik, who is no small man himself, and Hogan seems destined. To dominate the battle. But the Iron Sheik is not done. Iran number one, Russia number one, America two, two. This is the chant. This is the mantra. This is the Cold War being played out on a wrestling man. The whole world seems to know this isn't a battle between two men. This is a clash between two cultures, the Iron Sheik plays the part of the savage perfectly, something straight out of the Middle Ages. Hogan assumes the role of an all-American patriot, and in a show of American muscle, rips off his tank top, throwing it into the enraptured crowd. Just like that, Iranians, Arabs, Muslims, and whatever else comes from the Middle East becomes everyone's favorite villain in WWF. And just as the impact of the Iranian Revolution of 1979 is in full swing, anti-Arab and anti-Iranian sentiment sweep the West. From Toledo Society, I'm Professor Said Khan, and this is 1400OMG, your guide to what the hell happened in modern Muslim history. In this series, we look into the key events in the Muslim world over the last two centuries to dig deep into some of the root causes of the situation many find themselves in today. In the last episode, we spoke of the unrest, the anger, and the resentment in Tehran that led to the 1979 Iranian Revolution. We learned how the Shah became public enemy number one among his own people, And within a few weeks of his departure from the country, Ayatollah Khomeini returns and the clergy of Iran takes over. In this episode, we will hear of Ayatollah Khomeini's rule and its impact not only within Iran, not only within the Muslim world, but across the globe over the last four decades. Following the revolution in 1979, Ayatollah Khomeini and the ulama formed the Council of the Islamic Republic, the supreme administrative and legislative body in Iran. After coming to power, Khomeini does not recognize Prime Minister Bakhtiar's government because he was appointed under the Shah. So he names Mehdi Bazargan as his own Prime Minister. Bazargan gets right to work, focusing on restoring administrative order and economic stability by encouraging the formation of secular governing institutions. Of course, Khomeini and the CIR, the Council of the Islamic Republic, are opposed to this, being members that they are of the clergy. Therefore, Khomeini issues laws and decrees, fighting against, with veto power, over Bazargan and his regime. What does, and what is, Bazargan supposed to do with his hands tied in this way? By the end of the year, Bazargan resigns out of frustration over clerical opposition to domestic policy. Following Bazargan's resignation, Khomeini establishes the Revolutionary Guard, a force which is independent of the regular military. They're made up, mostly, of the urban poor. And what is their mandate? Of course, the Guard is formed to quell opponents of the revolution. Ayatollahs close to Khomeini then formed the Islamic Republican Party, the IRP, to provide organizational structure to the new government. Their goal is to mobilize popular support for and of the Islamic Republic. For unity's sake, the IRP needs to discredit secular moderates who pose a threat to the Islamic part of the Islamic Republic. The IRP becomes a major political force. Aided by the use of the Revolutionary Guards, they are able to garner public support in calling for Islamic social justice, rather than secular social justice. With this push, the freedom movement, which still appealed to middle-class technocrats and professionals, is defeated. There are many reasons for this defeat, not the least of which is because their ideological ties to Western secularism. At this time in Iran, anything which was connected to the West was seen as inimical and a threat to the future of Iran. In fact, the very term West-toxification, Gharab in Farsi, was seen as a slur and was seen as a pejorative toward those who had anything to do with Western ideals and their compatibility with the new Iran. With the return of Khomeini, things are moving very fast. The new Iran is well on its way to becoming an Islamic Republic. In March of 1979, the national referendum to replace the monarchy with an Islamic Republic becomes a reality. A constitution endorsing the principle of Iran as an Islamic State starts gaining momentum and it allows the ulama to become a dominant governing authority. Under the new constitution, the president is directly appointed. The president then has the authority to appoint the prime minister directly. But where is the people's voice in the Republic? The people, well, they get to elect the majlis, the single chamber assembly. But there are conditions. For example, all decisions of these institutions are subject to review by a 12-member Council of Guardians who can accept or reject decisions based on the conformity they have to Islamic standards. The constitution adopts, formally, Khomeini's principle of vilayt al-faqih, governance by the Islamic jurist. This position is entrusted to Khomeini, and he is given the right to appoint half of the Council of Guardians. He's also given the right to appoint and dismiss the Commander-in-Chief of the Armed Forces and the Revolutionary Guards. And he is given the power to confirm the President's election. The Constitution is approved by national referendum by late 1979. Just a quick note regarding Toledo Society. 1400 OMG is one podcast in a network of podcasts called Toledo Society. To find out more, visit ToledoSociety.com. The first president of the new Iran, the Islamic Republic of Iran, is appointed in 1980. His name, Abul Hassan Bani Sadr. He becomes the face of the Iranian revolution in many Western media outlets. Bani Sadr was educated in Paris and is a devotee of Khomeini. He is committed to the preservation of Iran's Islamic cultural identity, but he favors a secular government. He also opposes the religious establishment's dominance. In November of 1979, youthful supporters of Khomeini occupy the U.S. Embassy in Tehran, and they take 52 hostages for a total 444 days. This act destroys U.S.-Iranian relations, ones that are severed to this day. President Carter attempts an ill-fated hostage rescue. Not only is it unsuccessful but several members of the US military who were involved in it perish themselves. This mechanism, this operation on foreign soil, further inflames the Iranian public opinion against the US. The following year, in late 1980, Iraq invades Iran, starting what will be an eight-year war. Bani Sadr gradually loses support as secular middle-class reforms are silenced, and the supporters who can afford to do so flee the country. Bani Sadr becomes politically isolated and by 1981 he is impeached and flees the country for Paris. The new Iran is to become an Islamic Republic. The government pushes social justice as its objective, and the people rally around it. The banks are nationalized along with insurance companies and large industrial corporations equal distribution of wealth is the ultimate goal and the government pursues a new economic climate land is confiscated from the middle and upper middle classes and is then redistributed to peasants this is not dissimilar from the efforts the shah made before his overthrow dating back to the 1963 white revolution what is suspicious about this reform well the large land ulama are coincidentally, exempt from confiscation. When it comes to the justice system, only judges who are competent in Islamic law are allowed to preside over hearings because secular law codes are discarded in favor of Islamic legal ones. A dress code for all females is established. They are required to wear loose-fitting clothing, the chador, along with headscarves whenever in public. These reforms, mixed with the religious undertone of the Iranian Revolution, causes Iran to become isolated in the Middle East, as around this time Iranian support for radical Shia groups in Lebanon grows. Arabs fear the Iranian revolution because they fear Khomeini will export his militant brand of Shiism and revolutionary fervor to their states, and as a result they support Iraq in the brewing war it has against Iran. It's late 1981, and things are chaotic. What started out as a territorial dispute over the al Arab waterway between Iran and Iraq has turned into a full-scale war. The United States has gotten involved by backing Iraq, which is pushing deeper into Iran. At the same time, the militant Islamic left, known as M.E.K., Mujahideen e tries to destabilize the regime by killing dozens of religious and political leaders. The government responds to this with mass arrests and executions of militant figures, hoping to crush the opposition. While the war is raging with Iraq, another battleground in Iran emerges, ideological conformity. To crush the opposition's ideas, the government targets universities, faculty, students, and even textbooks, which are put under the microscope for dissent. Enrollment at these institutions reduces dramatically. Despite the war, and the internal chaos, the economy does not cripple. Wars are expensive, so typically economies crumble through indebtedness, which is what happens in Iraq. What keeps this from happening in Iran? Well, the country's reserves keep the money circulating, so massive debts are never incurred. Avoiding the fate of many other nations in their similar position leads to a new sense of self-reliance for the Iranian people. On September 22, 1980, the Iran-Iraq War officially begins. Iraq invades western Iran, claiming that Iran had fired artillery onto Iraqi border towns earlier in the month. Saddam Hussein's rationale for the invasion is a territorial dispute over the Shat al-Arab waterway between Iran and Iraq, which empties into the Persian Gulf. In 1975, Iraq had ceded partial control over the Shat al-Arab to Iran when it was militarily weak. However, when the political turmoil and instability followed the revolution, Saddam sees this as his opportunity to seize and reclaim the waterway for himself and for Iraq. In order to claim victory, the Iraqi strategy is quite simple. They must seize the Iranian oil fields in the western part of the country, Khuzestan. This is initially successful as the Iraqis capture the port city of Khorramshahr in late 1980. However, the Iranian forces provide strong resistance which forces the Iraqis to withdraw from land gains less than two years later in 1982. Following this, Ayatollah Khomeini declares that victory would be attained by the Iranian forces. Due to their defeats, the Iraqi military resorts to chemical warfare, unleashing poisonous gas on their enemies. But despite this atrocity, the Iranian army manages to capture the Majnoon Islands in February of 1984. By February of 1986, Iran also captures the Foul Peninsula. In 1987, the United States and several Western European nations become involved in the war. Their motivation? Oil, of course. Iranian forces attacked Kuwaiti oil tankers traveling in the Persian Gulf, which damaged Iran's international reputation considerably, and which in turn made it difficult for Khomeini to purchase weapons for his forces. The lack of access to arms forced the Iranians to accept a United Nations mandated ceasefire in 1988. During the ceasefire, a United States Naval vessel shoots down an Iranian Airlines commercial plane over the Persian Gulf, which was deemed to be an accident by the US government and an overtly aggressive break in the ceasefire by the Iranians. Somehow, however, the ceasefire holds. The casualties of the war are estimated at 1.5 million people over the eight-year span. The Iran-Iraq war represents the political polarization of the world. Iran is supported by Syria and Libya, getting weapons delivered from North Korea and China, plus some covert US sales. Iraq, on the other hand, has wider support across the Arab and Western world, and the Soviet Union is its biggest arms supplier. In 1990, the war ends with Iraq agreeing to withdraw from Iranian territories, but the agreement is never actually signed by either party. Both countries hold thousands of prisoners of war, and the exchanges of these personnel is not made fully complete until 2003. That ends our deep dive into the Iranian revolution. We hope you've enjoyed the episodes. For more information or for any feedback, please visit ToledoSociety.com.